Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. The killers drove down Olive Street in the still of the night, pulled their car into the couple's driveway, and rolled slowly up toward the house. They snuck up to the front door, gentle on the gravel beneath their shoes. They turned the knob. It's open. They enter the home, the sounds of their footsteps undetected, their breath held. They find their way to the couple's bedroom, gun ready. Standing at the foot of the bed, they briefly watch over the two men who are sleeping peacefully. The killers then do what they've been planning, what they've been sent to do. They unload the gun into the men's bodies and then reload. This is Method and Madness, Episode 10, Fire and Brimstone, Matthew and Tyler Williams. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. They didn't see it coming, murdered in the middle of the night in the sanctity of their own home. While investigating, forensic evidence and other clues were abundant, and police began piecing together a narrative, one that begged the question, was the brutal killing of a gay couple linked to a series of arsons in the same area in California? What was the motive? Let's dive in. 50-year-old Gary Matson and 40-year-old Winfield Mauder were a couple living in Happy Valley, a community southwest of Redding, California, a town in Shasta County, with a population of about 80,000 in 1999. Gary was born on April 6, 1949, and had a love of plants and gardening that seemed to be a part of his DNA. He went to college to study horticulture at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where he earned a Master's of Science degree in environmental horticulture. There, he met his future wife, Marcia Howe, and together, they founded Carter House National Science Museum in Reading, an educational center that provided information and tours on nature for schools and visitors. In 1979, the couple had a daughter, Clea. They divorced in the 80s as Gary began to come to terms with his sexuality, coming out as a gay man. He and Marcia remained close, continuing to raise their daughter and maintaining a friendly relationship. Before long, Gary met his future partner, Winfield Mauder, who shared his passion for horticulture. Winfield was born on May 30, 1959, and had studied at Chico State University, where he earned a bachelor's degree in anthropology. The two began a romantic relationship in 1985 and lived as an openly gay couple in Happy Valley. They were instrumental in the leading of community gardens and started several businesses in the gardening industry, Matson Horticulture and Floribundance Nursery in Rudding, California. They also created an online plant business called Plants2Go.com. Gary was well-known in his community for his gardening expertise and became a go-to for residents to seek advice or to find out, hey, what's this plant that's growing in my yard? Both men were drawn to nature and cultivated that into growing food for the hungry, and by all accounts were great men that delighted in bringing the beauty of nature to their neighbors. On Thursday, July 1st, 1999, 
Oscar Matson, Gary's father, called the couple's home and heard an outgoing message on the answering machine that he found perplexing. The message said, Hi, everybody. This is Gary. Uh, we've come down with something pretty bad, pretty suddenly, and we're going to go back to a specialist friend of ours in the Bay Area. We'll see you guys in about a week. Okay, bye. Oscar told his son Roger that Gary and Winfield were ill and asked him to go check on his brother and partner. After all, they had all just had dinner together the night before and everything seemed fine. Roger didn't think the voice on the machine sounded like Gary or Winfield, so he drove to the couple's home that hot summer afternoon to Olive Drive, a home set against a backdrop of vineyards and olive trees, a home that was a plant lover's dream in a remote, quiet area. And outside the home, Roger noticed that Gary's car was missing from the driveway. Maybe the pair had left to seek medical advice. Roger knocked on the door. No answer. So he went inside and initially didn't see anything that would cause concern until he got to the bedroom. There, he found a chilling scene. His brother Gary and partner Winfield shot to death in their bed, blood all over their bodies, the bed, the walls, and the ceiling. Police arrived at the crime scene where they saw no sign of forced entry or evidence of a break-in, no ransacked drawers, overturned chairs, or telltale signs of a burglary or robbery gone wrong, not even a sign of a struggle. Gary and Winfield had appeared to be asleep in bed when someone came in and shot them each several times in the abdomens and in each of their heads. Their bed was a loft style and was about seven feet off the floor, and based on the pattern of blood spatter, the killer or killers had stood on chairs and initially shot them from a distance before getting up close and shooting the couple in their heads. This appeared to be a targeted killing overkill. Someone had come into this home with the sole purpose of murder, and that someone had a very personal reason for killing the couple. The only things missing from the home were Gary's driver's license, one of his credit cards, and his car. Roger and Brian, Gary's brothers, told police that the voice on the outgoing message of the answering machine didn't sound like Gary or Winfield, and police suspected that it was the killer that had made the message in order to throw friends and family off and to delay the discovery of the bodies. They removed the tape from the machine and sent it to officials at the FBI's Quantico headquarters to analyze the voice and see if any other evidence could be extracted from the tape. The next step in tracking down the killer was to get a hold of the activity from Gary's stolen credit card to see if that could lead to a suspect. Detectives contacted the bank every day, an inquiry into if the credit card was being used. While police were following up on all leads, the residents of Happy Valley and of Reading were mourning the tragic and shocking death of the couple. Members of the LGBTQ community were scared, wondering if the couple had been targeted specifically for their sexual orientation, and if so, would other members of their community be targeted? Gary and Winfield didn't have any enemies, yet it seemed the killers knew who they were. And it had only been nine months earlier that a young gay man, 21-year-old Matthew Shepard, was murdered in Wyoming. Who was next? 
Shasta County residents arranged a memorial at Caldwell Park on Quartz Hill Road in Reading, where they met a few days after the murders to grieve and to plant seeds. A scholarship for Gary's daughter, who was 20 at the time, was set up by loved ones. Meanwhile, on July 7th, six days after the murders, the bank confirmed to investigators that Gary Matson's credit card was currently being used, and they provided the transactional information. The card had been used to purchase $1,000 of product at a shoe store and was at that moment being used to purchase ammunition and other gun-related goods for delivery. Investigators were able to get the address of where the shipment was being made. It was about 115 miles from Reading, the location of a mail drop box store in Yuba City, so investigators headed there immediately. What happened next, if you had told me this was a part of a movie script, I would say it was way too far-fetched, too easy a dramatic moment. When police arrived at the Yuba City mail drop box store, they found two men loading boxes with Gary Matson's name on them into a red Toyota. Police attempted to arrest the men at gunpoint, but the men were both armed, one of them wearing a bulletproof vest who was acting especially uncooperative, antagonizing the officers as if he were begging for a duel. The two men eventually cooperated and were taken under arrest, refused to speak without attorneys, and inside the red Toyota, police found what was a treasure trove of evidence. Inside the car, they found Gary's credit card and driver's license, a gun silencer, and crowbars in the trunk, broken glass on the car's seats, and a large amount of guns and ammunition. Gary's car was found deserted on a road not too far away. The two men were brothers, Benjamin Matthew Williams, 31 years old, and James Tyler Williams, 29 years old, who each went by their middle names and were from Palo Cedro, California, a tiny 3.7-square-mile town in Shasta County with a population of about 1,200. Now that they had their suspects and the victim's identification and credit card in their car, police needed to connect the two brothers to the murders by some physical evidence in order to charge them with murder and successfully take the case to court. The shattered glass found in the car, the crowbars, and a gun silencer in the trunk were each sent to forensic labs for analysis. Investigators searched the homes of Matthew, who lived on his own, and of Tyler, who still lived with his parents. Both homes were only a few miles from the house shared by Gary and Winfield. What they found was profoundly disturbing and opened the door to more evidence of crimes and a possible motive. At one of the homes was a book on how to make a homemade gun silencer, the same kind that had been found in the trunk of the red Toyota. Each man had anti-Semitic, racist, and white supremacist literature in their homes, as well as a list of well-known Jewish residents from the area. A hit list, it seemed. They had books on how to commit break-ins and how to commit arson. They appeared to be stockpiling weapons and preparing for the upcoming Y2K, a computer software problem that some people feared in 1999 would cause chaos on January 1st, 2000. And perhaps most suspicious were the newspaper articles that they had kept, almost like trophies. 
The articles were from a few weeks ago, June 18, 1999, when several arsons in the area had made headlines. The fires were ignited at three different synagogues. Congregation B'nai Israel, Congregation Beth Shalom, and Knesset Israel Torah Center, all in the Sacramento area. Police also knew that at the scene of each arson, similar hate literature had been left strewn about, particularly anti-Semitic literature. Those arsons had shook the Jewish community, where luckily nobody had been physically harmed, but the emotional toll it took on them, the pain of seeing the targeted hate at their place of worship was unimaginable, and the damage amounted to over $3 million. So who were these two men that were living day in and day out, consumed with such hate? Matthew and his younger brother Tyler were the only children of Benjamin, a U.S. Forest Service employee who believed the government was the enemy, and Sally, a teacher. They were raised in a home of strict Christian fundamentalism, with the Bible being a prominent teaching device. Sally homeschooled her sons throughout their elementary years, and both parents had forbidden their children from experiencing a typical childhood. They were discouraged from making friends and were not allowed to engage in any extracurricular activities. Rather, they were living in a bubble created by their parents where their development was only formed by the two people within their four walls. By the time they were teens, they began attending public school at Gridley High School in Gridley, California, where they earned decent grades. Neighbors remembered feeling badly for the pair while they were children as they were forced to keep to themselves. An interesting tidbit on the background of the suspects and their family appeared in an article of the San Francisco Gate provided by a local school teacher, David Anderson. He had purchased the family's home in 1996 and had experienced some bizarre situations. Anderson said of the boy's father, quote, Ben was a very strange, fanatical, religious-type dude. When it came down to those typical house issues, things that prospective buyers often come across, like passing inspection, Anderson said the family would pray over the item in the house that may be in question, like a water heater, and demand Anderson participate in their prayers. The situation became so contentious that Anderson considered abandoning the purchase while the Williams family were also having second thoughts on Anderson as a buyer, being what they called unholy and a, quote, Nazi. After high school, Matthew joined the army and went to college to study religion. He attempted to join several different churches but was kicked out of many of them on the basis that his views were becoming way too extreme. Acquaintances of his said that he would initially come across as having typical Christian beliefs, but boiled over to aggressive views, anti-Semitic views, racism, homophobia, and was constantly spewing conspiracy theories. What it boiled down to was Matthew believed in the laws of God, not the laws created by man. He befriended a guy, Dan Martin, who on an episode of Oxygen's Killer Siblings described Matthew as compulsive with an obsessive desire to learn everything about a subject he was interested in, wanting his peers to be as interested as he was. 
And those subjects included apocalyptic views, seeing Jews as subhuman, and homosexuality as a sin. It was suspected after their arrest that Matthew and Tyler were a part of the Christian identity, a movement that rose in the 80s with its members identifying with anti-government, racist, and anti-Semitic beliefs. At the time of the murders, the brothers were growing their own food, raising chickens, and working as landscapers. And despite their extreme beliefs, their customers just saw two polite men who did good work on their lawns. They had no criminal background, and to most people that came across them day to day, the two didn't raise any concerns. While police were deep into investigating the murders, the background of their suspects unfolding, and now what the possible connection was to the recent crimes of arson, Matthew and Tyler Williams were still not talking to investigators. Matthew, however, who was considered the leader of the two, the puppeteer, a self-proclaimed white supremacist, was happily talking to the press and every reporter that would come his way while in jail. He would go on to talk about how Tyler wasn't involved in the attack on Gary and Winfield, but that he himself had done God's work. Videos of Matthew at his hearings portray a smiling man that is satisfied with what he's done, no remorse, pleased with gaining any attention from that shock value. In contrast, younger brother Tyler appeared depressed and sat quietly while appearing at the hearings. In a letter he wrote in jail to apply for a credit card, Matthew said, quote, My brother and I were captured by occupation stormtroopers while we were on a supply mission. We are now incarcerated for our work in cleansing a sick society. Matthew really enjoyed the spotlight and saw it as a game of wouldn't you like to know what I know? What was known now was growing. All of the evidence that police found in the brothers' red Toyota and in their homes was all coming together and creating a narrative of two men motivated by hate. Forensics analysis concluded the following. The glass shards that were found inside the men's car were compared to broken glass at all three synagogues, and there was a match. Those crowbars located in the trunk of the red Toyota had paint on them, and that paint, through the magic of forensic science, was connected to a building that contained an abortion clinic, another location that had been a target of arson the day after Gary and Winfield were murdered. The homemade silencer found in their car had a drop of blood at the end of it, and the blood was matched to that of Winfield Mowder. Spent cartridges lying on the floor of Gary's and Winfield's bedroom matched a gun in the Williams brothers' possession. Additionally, a wick on the end of a firebomb found at one of the arson crime scenes was examined under a microscope and found to have chicken and dog hairs attached to it. These hairs were compared to the hairs of the many chickens and the dog that lived at the Williams family home. And sure enough... They were a match. And finally, despite Matthew claiming that his brother had nothing to do with the murders, the tape from Gary's and Winfield's answering machine told a different story. Officials at Quantico had enhanced the voice on the recording and matched it to Tyler Williams' voice. 
In the background of that recording, they were able to hear another male voice saying to make the recording as long as possible. This was proof that Tyler Williams was present at the scene of the murder and provided further evidence that Matthew Williams was the brother in charge. There was surely more than enough physical evidence here, and on July 19, 1999, police charged Matthew and Tyler Williams with premeditated murder, and they were held without bond. Police believed that the Williams brothers had become acquainted with their victims at the Reading Farmer's Market, where Gary and Winfield ran a booth adjacent to Matthews and Tyler's, who were there representing the landscaping business. It appeared that the brothers had formally met the couple and grew acquainted to an extent and knew that they were homosexuals. While awaiting trial, Matthew Williams never turned down the spotlight, continued to seek out interviews, call reporters, and granted an interview to reporter Sam Stanton of the Sacramento Bee. In that recorded jailhouse interview, Matthew told Stanton, quote, I'm guilty of obedience to the laws of the Creator, removing abominations from the land. When Stanton sought clarification on whether that meant homosexuals, Matthew replied, certainly. He then confirmed that he removed Gary and Winfield from the land. Matthew didn't know or wasn't willing to divulge why he and his brother chose that couple or why it happened at the time it did. Matthew Williams, through his various writings from jail to different journalists, seemed to be insinuating that he and his brother were a part of a larger movement, larger than two, that there was a national group of white supremacists that were out there doing the work for them in their absence. However, the FBI never found any link between the Williams brothers and any other group committing similar crimes. It seemed by all accounts that the William brothers had acted on their own and that Matthew was the one who had pulled the trigger. The men were charged in a 13-count indictment for the arsons. Charges included conspiracy to destroy and close synagogues, reproductive health facilities, and other targeted buildings, and to thereby provoke further incidents of violence and to intimidate, terrorize, and harm Jews, providers of reproductive health services, and other groups of persons whom the defendants regarded as inferior or undesirable. In September 2001, they pleaded guilty to federal charges for setting the fires at the three Sacramento synagogues and at the abortion clinic. They both took plea agreements. Matthew would face 30 years in prison, and Tyler would face 20 years. Bill Lon Lee, assistant attorney for civil rights, said, quote, Church arson not only burns buildings, but also robs people of their feelings of safety and acceptance in their places of worship. These crimes will not be tolerated. On June 22, 2002, while an inmate at Shasta County Jail waiting for his murder trial to begin, Matthew befriended a fellow inmate, Paul Gordon Smith, and reportedly the two of them targeted a Jewish corrections officer, 24-year-old Timothy Renault. They created a weapon out of a shower drain and other materials that they could get their hands on and ambushed Renault while he was making his rounds. Renault suffered severe injuries, including a skull fracture and broken jaw, but eventually made a recovery. 
Williams and Smith were each charged in the attack. On November 17, 2002, Matthew Williams, rather than face his punishment at the murder trial that was just weeks away, was able to get a hold of a razor blade in his cell and one morning was found dead. He was wounded by at least 75 self-inflicted cuts to his neck, arms, and legs and had bled to death. In his cell, a Bible was open to Psalm 22 and 23. Some of those passages read, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And another passage, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. The murder trial for Tyler Williams was held the next month in December 2002, where he took a plea deal and was sentenced to 29 years to life for the murders of Gary and Winfield, a sentence he was to serve upon completion of the sentence for the arsons. Additional information that could shed some light on a possible deeper motive of the murders When Matthew Williams' former friend, Dan Martin, found out about the charges of the murders, the hate crimes, he gave an interview to The Advocate saying that he believed his own coming out as gay was what shook Matthew, that Matthew had tried to recruit him into some religious groups, but discovered that Dan had recently come out as a homosexual and was a coordinator for an HIV prevention group. Back when they were friends, Dan had suspicions that Matthew himself was gay but hadn't come to terms with it and was offended at the notion that anyone would think so. That his hatred of homosexuals and perhaps the turmoil of his own sexuality caused him to lash out at Gary and Winfield. If true, and if Matthew was self-loathing and directing his hate outward, then it certainly adds a new spin on his hate crimes. The FBI reported in 2018 that hate crimes in the U.S. were at 7,036 incidents, with 20% being out of religious bias and 17% out of sexual orientation bias. While I was writing this episode, the Associated Press released an article that's headline read, Vatican Bar's Gay Union Blessing Says God Can't Bless Sin. While the church made the distinction that they will continue to bless and welcome gay people, it could not uphold their unions. For the LGBTQ community that is already facing a daily battle for inclusion and to bring awareness that they are not less than or other, this was devastating news. It's a world for them of two steps forward and one step back. And for those who want to oppress members of the community, they see it as a win. Looking at the evidence of the crimes committed by the Williams brothers, and and wow, there was a lot of evidence, it seems pretty cut and dry at the surface. Matthew Williams certainly wasn't shy when his motive was questioned. As his days in jail ticked by and he reached out to more news stations and more and more journalists showed up at his plexiglass door, Matthew would divulge a little more information with each interview. He was proud of what he did and didn't see it as crimes. His own admissions, quote, You obey a government of man until there is a conflict. 
Then you obey a higher law. It's part of the faith. So many people claim to be Christians and complain about all these things their religions say are a sin, but they're not willing to do anything about it. They don't have the guts. Matthew Williams didn't plead not guilty because he didn't commit these crimes or because he was trying to lie his way through his defense. He pled not guilty because he didn't see anything wrong with ridding the world of two gay men, of setting fire to synagogues that he later said he wished had burnt to the ground. In his mind, these were not crimes. These were actions he was called to do, actions that only he had the courage to do. In death, he became what he had hoped to be, a Christian martyr. More likely, however, it was fear and the impending punishment that led to his death, that his violent tendencies found a scapegoat to take the Bible and interpret it or twist it into a way that fit his narrative. He used his beliefs as a means to target those who he thought were beneath him to recruit his brother. Those who knew Matthew in his late teens and 20s saw a man who slowly changed from a strictly religious guy to someone who needed something, a purpose. Perhaps hate was the easiest thing for him to cling to. Tyler Williams will be eligible for parole when he's about 80 years old. After the 1999 arson attacks, the community in the Sacramento area came together to build a new synagogue assisted by many of Christian faith. To unite the Jewish community and their neighbors, several events have been held over the years to commemorate the remembrance and resilience and to fight hate and intolerance. Members of the LGBTQ community have said that because of Gary and Winfield, because of their murders that were rooted in hate, that being an advocate has become a mission, a mission that moves them to mentor the younger members of their community in a nation that still fights for equality. Marsha, the mother of Gary Madsen's daughter, passed away in 2003, and a community garden in honor of her, Gary, and Winfield grows at Caldwell Park in Reading, the Madsen Mowder Howe Celebration Garden. That, along with the many other seeds that Gary and Winfield planted throughout their lives, continues to bloom. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. If you like the podcast, go ahead and leave a five-star review. Every review really does help. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please email me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.